Who is making artisanal meat products today? Where can an aspiring craftsman learn the craft? We talked to Chris Young to find out. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Chris Young. He's the Executive Director of the American Association of Meat Processors here in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. So happy to have you here, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be a part of it. So let's talk a little bit about what AMP is. Why don't you tell me about it? So AMP is America's largest meat trade association, but we focus mainly on the small and very small processors. So a lot of your mom and pop butchers from across the country. We do have some larger companies that belong, but we really focus on being a support mechanism for small processors and small butchers all across the country. And so by small, what does that mean? Um, Different from USDA's definition, USDA's definition of small is 500 or less employees. Ours Mm, is- Which is pretty big. (laughs) That's pretty big. We have several of those companies, but for the most part, when I mean small, we're talking less than 100. Majority are probably less than 50. And a good share of them are family owned and run and might be a handful of people that work in that small butcher shop. So when we were talking before, one of the things you were discussing was the new crop of people, the young people who are becoming interested in sort of artisanal products. Tell me a little bit about that and how the industry is changing. Sure. Uh, Probably five to seven years ago, the local food movement farm to table really began to take hold. And so there's been two driving forces in seeing a new younger crop of butchers come into the business. One from that side of it, we see where this next generation is really focused on, okay, where does my meat come from? A lot of them want to source it locally. And so they're in contact with local farmers and they're taking it to a local processor and getting things done. They want to know what, what that trail is, and whether it's because they want hormone-free or antibiotic-free or just whatever. And so that is really pushed along with that local food movement that has now seen our side of the industry really take on and grow in the last five to seven years. And so that has pushed a lot of our supplier members who supply the meat industry with equipment and seasonings and those things to begin to tailor some of their equipment and packaging machines and those type of things uh, to fit in our small processing places. That's made it very enticing for the next generation because they've watched mom and dad labor or watched older folks labor in this industry for a long time doing everything by hand and not seeing it be as profitable. And now with that, that adds into it. And then on the other side, there's a big push with all of the cooking shows and all the things you see on TV that this generation has access to on their phones and their iPads and all these things, we see a big push towards the artisanal products. And so everyone wants to try and cure their own pork belly or they want to do these different products. And that's really gained a lot of interest. And so that's pushed a lot of people who may have been 
headed down the road of being a chef or being a cook of some sort now to be in the meat processing business because it goes hand in hand with what they want to do. And so we've seen a big influx of the younger generation getting into the meat industry. And do you think that people who want to do some of these things at home are also there's an interest there where people are wanting to make their own products? Sure. There's been a, there's been a lot of interest with that. In fact, some of our processors have been able to capitalize on that as another part of their business. For instance, buying and selling seasoning packs and recipes and those different types of things to those folks that want to take it home and they want to be able to make those types of products. They may have gone out to a Cabela's or to a or to a restaurant store and bought a little grinder and those different types of things or been to another outdoor store or Home Depot and bought a little smoker and they want to do those types of things. And a lot of people have gone down that uh, gone down that road and so for our processors, we even have some processors that when it's not peak season or it's during the middle of the week um, and business is a little bit slower, some of them are actually offering courses in how do I cure bacon. So they're teaching people how to dry rub bacon and those different types of things and then send them home with five or six pounds of bacon. Um, that they've made themselves. That they've made themselves. And so that has been a really catch-on thing because, again, with all the cooking shows and all the different things that are out there and there's shows out there on barbecue contests and it's just really piqued the interest in those type of those type of particular products. We have those classes at the museum and they're mm. very, very popular, especially the bacon. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but we've started having classes and things like dressing your own deer and mm -hmm. making deer sausage and all of that kind of thing. And really people come out of the woodwork. It's amazing. Yeah, some of our guys have done really well in the Midwest with those types of things. And even they become even corporate events where different groups are calling in and asking if they would do a corporate event, a team building event. Mm -hmm. And they would bring them in and, you know, and husband and wife with all their co-workers and they would come in and they would make sausages or something along that lines. And so it's really become a very fast growing part of some people's business. I've even seen on the Internet instructions for taking something like a, a wine refrigerator and pulling out all of the shelves and letting things hang in there because they often have temperature controls on them. So it's easy to control the temperature inside of those little yeah, coolers. One of the big artisanal things that has become very, very popular and you see more of those type of instructions has been for drying sausages, the old world sausages. And so you see that with a lot of different things out there advertising that you can get this little home outfit, or as you said, a way to convert something that you can have temperature and humidity controls in, that at home you can stuff off your little grinder, you, you can stuff out, you know, some sort of old world sausage, you know, a chorizo or something, and then hang it in here and you can dry it and, you know, so on and so forth. And so it's become yeah. a real, a real fun thing for people to do. Yes, I, I I think it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and in many ways it keeps these traditions, which perhaps would have been abandoned, not because people weren't interested in eating them, but because they weren't profitable. Those uh, traditions may have been lost, and yeah. then only the big meat packers would be making them, as as opposed to the small processors. And it's nice to see that there's a resurgence of interest in them. Yeah, it's been really good for our small processors. They end up kind of on the cutting edge, the front edge of 
these different types of new movements just from the simple fact they've been making all kinds of bratwurst and dry sausages for years, but they benefit from it because they're a smaller company. They're more flexible. They can they can take on these little projects and they can do those things. So that's made it made it really, really good. And to see the interest come back to those different types of things is really well. It's been a struggle because of the difficulty on a larger scale of trying to make those sausages with a heat step in it as to what the, regu- the regulatory agencies would require, but finding ways to do that and finding ways to still meet that, but then to be able to do it on a home level where you can just really do it the old-fashioned the old way. way without having to sell it is, mm-hmm. is really good. Yes. So one of the things that I've been very impressed with is that as I've been learning more and more about the association's history, I've seen it reflect all the changes in culture and whatever that have taken place since its founding. So tell us a little bit about the history of the organization. So the organization started in 1939 in Des Moines, Iowa. And from there, it started out as a frozen food locker association and the need to come together to try and bring in some sort of consistency on what they were doing and and bring these groups together. And over the years, it has just developed from there, and there was a national ham association. There was different groups that just came together to eventually form the American Association of Meat Processors. And it's a unique history, and it moved here to Elizabethtown when they were going through that process. We had a local processor and farmer, Bob Madeira, who was from here, and they asked if he would be the director, and he had another job, and so on and so forth, and it wasn't a full-time gig at that point. And so... Bob said, I'll do it, but you need to move it to Elizabethtown. (laughs) So that's how we came from Des Moines, Iowa to Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. And it's been here ever since. And as far as AMP directors, I'm only the fifth. Bob was the first as far as being the director of AMP and when they finally organized everything. But it's been a unique process along the way. We've seen the organization evolve through its involvement in regulatory affairs to just bringing our small processors through all the different changes, whether it's regulations or just the way of the country's different wants and desires. And and just to see it develop. When I started here seven years ago, the big push was they wanted more representation in Washington and in the state houses in affecting change to the regulations as they pertain to small processors. So we've tried to do that and get more involved. But just as the industry has to change and adapt just as the world does with technology. And that's kind of what we're seeing here at AMP. We've gone through a rebranding in the last number of years with a new logo and and different things on the technology side. But it's been a really, the unique part of AMP is that we are small butchers in small towns all across the country. And each of them oftentimes is in a town that has its own ethnic flavor to it. And so it's really neat to be a part of an organization that has that diverse flavor from all from all over the country, whether you're in Wisconsin, which has a very strong German background to some of the other places where it's Polish background or French or Italian whatever. Italian. Yeah. yeah. And then you to see that really come out in the different products that they make, you know, because like we oftentimes joke, one of our American Cured Meats Championship when we do Andouille. And so, and true Andouille, which comes out of the South, is Uh totally different than someone's interpretation of Andouille in Iowa or whatever. And so, whatever products you have, wherever you go, has a flair from 
their background from the local geography. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, I could. I, and I was also really interested in the international connections that you have because obviously all of this processing is not something that originated in the United States. I mean, this is a longer history than our 300-year history. Yeah, exactly. Um, we've had probably our strongest relationship with the Germans, with the German Butchers Association. Germany hosts every three years the largest meat trade show in the world. It's called the IFA. And as a part of that, the German Butchers Association runs a competition. And so it's an international competition for all your best sausages and hams and bacons and so on and so forth. And that's kind of where the relationship started. Back when Steve Krupp was the executive director, they would tie that in with sightseeing trips and so on and so forth and, and make it a big trip. Now Nowadays, it's all about getting over there and doing the competition and people kind of split off and go their own ways. But that that relationship has really developed. And when you think about it, it's been a key for us. We brought the Germans here to judge our products because of the difficulty of getting our products through the European Union's um, nice inspectors and, and so on and so forth. And so that, that was a difficulty, but we ended up bringing them here, which only built the relationship more. The Germans' viewpoint of American meat products before they came was big box stores. They didn't realize they had counterparts here in the United States that were small butchers, just like they have all over Germany. So we've really developed kind of a brotherhood with them. And then that's expanded out to other countries that, that we have met there. But to put it into perspective for your listeners, our country is not even 300 years old. And when we were in Germany in 2019, they had just closed one of the family-owned butcher shops in Germany had just closed. It had been in business for over 500 years. Oh, my. Now, I, I don't know how many generations that was, but they've had butcher shops as old as 700 years old. And so to put that in perspective, three times, you know, almost three times the age of our country. Right. And so, but that has been a really unique thing, not just that we're gleaning from the Germans, but it has turned on the other side. We've been able to spend time teaching them how to make things like beef jerky. Mm-hmm. And they're really interested in, how, in what are the American cuts of beef and mm-hmm. pork and how do you break down an animal and what do you call that? And so we, we did that at the last IFA for, for them was we did demonstrations with their German Butchers came in from all over. There were butchers from Italy and from France and from all over the European Union there. And it was just a unique time to be able to, us to give back to them, you know, as much as we glean from them. I wonder whether we're going to find that the Food Network decides, with all of the competition shows that it has already, if they're going to would have a, a sausage making or some kind of interesting meat-related show other than barbecue. Yeah, it would be interesting to see that. I, we would love to see someone do that. There was a show that tried to get off the air. They did have a butchering contest show. I think they had it on the History Channel last year, and it didn't live very long. And I just think it's how they put it together and so on and so forth. Because when you get real meat guys and everyone was excited to see it, it didn't seem like we had real meat guys on the on the on the show oh. as much with what they were doing, but that would be an, be a certainly an interesting concept to see that. That, it, that would it, be really fun. It would be fun, and it would absolutely shine a light on some products that perhaps people aren't as familiar with. No, and and I think people would be shocked to know, you know, when you think of old world sausages and so on and so forth, you think of Germany, and 
when we did the EFA competition, I think not just were the judges surprised that they were small butchers here in the States, they were overwhelmed with the quality of products that were being made here. When you go to the EFA competition, you don't compete against other people. Your product competes against a standard. And so every product, when it gets put on the table, starts with 50 points, and then they have certain deductions for certain things. If you score 50, you get a gold medal. If you score 45 to 49, you get a silver. And if you score 40 to 44, you get a bronze. Anything that gets minus below that, you get nothing. So you could there could be more than one gold medal. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. Every product that enters the competition enters with the opportunity to earn a gold medal. And so it's unlike ours where you compete against each other and we give the top four places out. This is strictly you are putting it against a worldwide standard of this is what the product is. So I I referenced that because when we had our first competition in 2016 here, we had 300 and something products that were entered. It's the first time that we had held that competition here. When it was all said and done, we had 220 golds out of like 320 products. That's amazing. Yeah, and we only had 11 products that year that did not score 40 or above. So only 11 products, there was over 300 products that received medals that year. And they were very, very sat down and said, we did not go easy. This is just the quality of the products that were there. So um, I think Americans would be very proud to know that the butchers that represented them on the international stage have done very, very well. And the quality of products here is is really good. Wow, that is amazing. Is there, besides the German competition, is there another competition, any other competitions like that in Europe? I'm yeah, sorry. so in Europe, I think that each of the individual associations in their countries mm-hmm. have competitions like we have here in the States. Where you're pit against each other. No, I'm not sure how they run it, but I know okay. that there's competitions there. And they run, in Germany, they run some regional competitions throughout the years in between the IFA. But everyone there, I mean, in Germany, it's a big deal because they come to win you know, they all compete. And there's so many products to win this big cup because when you get the way it works is that you get so many um, points for each type of metal that you win and then the overall products that you that that you enter. So the more products you enter, the more opportunity you have to win the overall cup. They actually give out a big cup, a first and a second for the most golds in um, the ham the ham competition would be everything that doesn't go in a casing. So bacons, jerkies, anything like that would go in that. And then they have the sausage side of it, which is everything that goes in a casing. Mm-hmm. And so they give out a first and a second in those two categories. And then they give out an overall award, which in Germany, that is a that is a high price that guys go for. I mean, when we were over there, we had some gentlemen. Like here, we had a couple of our guys that entered the in 2019 around 40 products each. In Germany, there's guys that enter 100 products. Yeah. And it's and that is a high bill because it's like 100 to $110 in American to enter one product. Oh, so they have to, you have a fee for have each a product. a fee for every product. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, and so it's really a big deal because again, in those small butcher shops, just like our guys, you know, across the room over there is a sample of the gold medals that they give out, yes. of, the, of the certificate that goes with it, then you actually get a gold medal. And so those get hung up in their shops. And so it's a lot of our guys have those hanging with their medals framed and sitting on their on their retail counters. And, um, you know, and the cups that they've won, if you get five gold medals, you get a cup of honor, which is a gold cup that stands about 12 inches high. 
it's a beautiful cup and you can set it up on your counter and you know, and guys use it to advertise. Why would you not? Well, of course. Not just when they come to our American Cured Meats Championship, they can say, well, this is a reserve grand champion bacon or it's a grand champion bacon or whatever, but this is international. This is yes. one an international gold medal, you know, or something along that line. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's sounds, it's wonderful that that connection is there because it, when you think about sausage in particular, you think about Germany. Yeah, and so that yeah. means a lot. Yeah, and when we've been there, that has spawned the opportunity for relationships with other countries. And it's not just in the European Union, but there are others I've met. I've met contingencies from Russia and from Japan and from all these different places and all these different countries around Europe. And so that opens that up. People approached me in 2019 from Russia and from these different places and saying, well, how can we have the same relationship with you Americans that the Germans have? And so it's fostering others. And we want to do that. If we can find the time to do that, we want to foster those relationships because just as within our association, we believe that as every individual plant is strong, we as an association, we as an industry are strong. When one fails, it's a ding against all of us. Right. And so to have that here in America is one thing, but then to be able to be involved in internationally, understanding that we're involved now with brotherhoods that are across the ocean, that we're involved with other butchers who are all across the world. And that strengthens the world's industry, not just, you know, when you think about what it takes to feed this world, when you talk about what it takes to feed 300 million people in America. Um, and we saw that firsthand during the whole coronavirus deal and with big plants having to shut down and a lot of pressure was put on the small plants to provide in their small towns. And, and so we've seen just what it takes in order to do that. And it takes a, a strong industry combined together to be able to do that. That's right. Yes. So tell me now, let's go back to meat lockers. Sure. How did the, the whole business of the meat locker, especially as it, it moved to supplying freezers to individuals as opposed to before home freezers, obviously there were meat lockers, mm -hmm. but then once home freezers were made, how was it that people decided not to just buy their own freezer and then buy their own meat to fill it? How yeah. did that come to be? Well, I think that it's just one of those things is how, as how we see everything in life just evolves with, with technology and so on and so forth. You know, the old, the old meat locker plants. And if you go to the Midwest here in Iowa and Missouri and some of those places, a lot of our locker plants are still called locker plants. They're still like, we have Edgewood locker and Foley locker and all these different places, whether it's from Minnesota down through that were old locker plants. And for your listeners to understand that a locker plant was a person who the farmer, someone local would bring in their animal and they would pro they would slaughter and process that animal. And then they would have these, which looks like big lockers, drawers in their, in the, in the processing plants freezer. And so they would process the animal, package it as the, as the farmer wanted or as his neighbors wanted, whoever the animal's going to. And then they would, those folks would rent a locker by month from those folks. And so they would come in every every so often and get meat out of the locker and, and such. I think what took place is it was a slow change when in-home refrigeration came for, for that. Slow change just because 
not everyone because you when you get new technology it's usually the most expensive that it's ever going you know right uh, going to be and that's typically what happens so i think it was a long time of people in rural america being able to afford a home freezer you probably saw them in your suburbs and your metropolises of new york and the east coast and on the west coast a lot more there you saw that happen a lot faster than you did say in the midwest mm-hmm. and so i think that it was a lot longer to change over those locker plants and have people leave that behind and have their own home refrigeration just from a just from a purely economic standpoint. Um, well, they probably also had the practice of buying a half of an animal mm-hmm. or something like that. So they might as well get the freezer at the same time. I mean, it, you just deliver it and here it yeah. is in the freezer yeah. as opposed to going to a grocery store and buying a roast or something. Yeah. Which is a little bit of a, a different animal, a different way of buying. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, for some people to see how the grocery stores have even evolved mm-hmm. through this process of going from, you know, you used to look in your grocery stores and you saw the meat cutter back behind there. But even now, a lot of the grocery stores are buying in all their stuff pre-cut, pre-packaged from our larger processor. So all of that just takes time and people have to get used to doing that. And a lot of people hold on to the past, but it has, you know, people also move forward. We talked about that earlier as we talked about the different types of members I have within the association and some that haven't moved forward with technology. So we have to do all of our things across all these different levels to be able to meet everyone's needs. So do you find that within the association you have, say, kosher butchers, halal uh, processors, um, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So you're really still covering the, basically all the different kinds of, um, I want to say, rules, whether they're religious or cultural mm-hmm. ways of eating. Yeah, no, it's that's, that is a big part. In fact, for some of our members, so we do have some specific members who do specifically halal Mm -hmm. and others that do kosher and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth but then we've got some of our members who have grown a little bit and they'll they will accommodate any of those groups Mm -hmm. there they have the ability it would be under inspection most of it but yeah i mean we've had to do that and they've developed that and we try to provide them with all the information that they need also and do you find that you're getting more women members or is that still, is it still primarily men? No, actually, no, because I can think of right now, we've got some, uh, in our board of directors, we've had, over the seven years I've been here, we've had at least one or two women out of the 17 board members, one or two women all the time. Right now, we think we've got two or three on the board that are either the owners of the company or very high up in their family-owned business, and they're running the plants. And so it was just a good old boys. It's still probably predominantly that way, but I think that we've seen a lot more of not just the younger generation, but the women um, there in the business. So we have one couple from Minnesota who she had a plant and he had a plant. And they were <laughs> both owned by both of them, but it was really, this was her plant and that was his plant. And so, um, yeah. And, yeah, that's a that's an amazing point of view, but that's great. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So... Really, I'm going to ask you, what is it like representing the the small processor and what? how are the small processors' issues different from the larger ones? Well, for me, um, for me, representing the small guys is crucial. I love this industry. 
before I came to work for AMP, I was a small processor. I worked for two different companies um, for over 20 years in the industry, and I just love the industry. The difference in the small guys and the big guys is that the small guys, when they turn the key in the morning and show up for work, they have a lot more at stake. Um, most of them are family-owned businesses that have been passed down from generation, even if it hasn't been. It's, it's their baby. Everything they have in life is invested in that building and in the equipment and the employees. Um, it's a little bit different. So there's a, there's a lot more vested interest in what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not to say that the big guys don't look out for what they're doing, but it's a lot different for their CEOs to walk into a, a place that they don't own, but they're running for somebody versus the guy that turns the key and comes in and turns the lights on and pays the bills and so on and so forth. And so that's a big difference in those companies. In the smaller companies, the guys are there. Oftentimes my my guys that are members of our association, they own the company, they're working on the kill floor, they're working in the processing plant. And that's why we as an association are so important to them because we provide them with the regulatory things that they need to know and we provide them with the information. We try to read through the regulations and take all the lawyer stuff out and basically put in that, put to them in their newsletters, this is what you need to know. And so that's why we're available on, on, on the phone to be able to answer those questions. But it is important for us, not just in that way, but in representation in Washington. We've tried to increase that over the last number of years. We've got a good working relation with FSIS um, and with some of the state meat inspection programs just to show and to help them to understand that there is a big difference. You know, it seems like a lot of the regulations over the years have been bent towards the larger processors. And that's very difficult for a small processor because when some of the rules are made um, and they seem to go towards when I've got a big production line going, not when I'm making 15 different products today and I've got to move these things around and I've got to do this and that understanding. So it's a big deal because making um, those that are making the rules and regulations understand what it really means to live in the side of a small plant each day uh, and the importance of it. The, the thing is, is that in a lot of rural America, our small processors are what these folks have. Um, there's not a Walmart in town and, mm -hmm. and, and such. And so their success is key to that community. You might have two in the same same town, but oftentimes not. What is unique in our in our, our associations, the members come together and they share everything because they're not in competition with each other. Even if they're even if they're in the same state, the majority of them will come together and they'll share. They may not share their absolute secret ingredient mm -hmm. in a product, mm -hmm. but they share their processes and how they smoke their bacons and how they cook and we come together for our national convention. That's what it's about, is mm -hmm. networking, people coming together. But that's the difference, is that these guys live it, eat it, breathe it every day. They can't shut, turn off the light at night and close the door and lock the door and go home and forget about it. They live it 24-7, seven days a week. Chris, thanks so much for your time and for sharing all of your experience uh, with AMP with us today. Thank you for coming and giving us the opportunity to share. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Please come by when you are in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is 